We've been speaking now for many Lord's Days on the topic of Christ and the curse of the law. The last Lord's Day, we described once again how Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Our sins are forgiven. The judgment is satisfied. And we are set free. Paul teaches in Galatians 3 that the purpose of this sacrifice of Jesus for us is that we might receive the blessing of Abraham. That is the imputation of righteousness by faith. And apart from the works of the law, Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the one who blesses all the world. But Paul adds that another purpose for Christ being made a curse for us, to redeem us, is that we might receive the promise of the Spirit of God by faith. The Lord Jesus declared to Nicodemus, Unless a man is born of the Spirit, he cannot see nor enter into the kingdom of God. This is being born again, or regeneration. Jesus did not teach that we are reborn by the Spirit a second time, but rather that having been born of the flesh, we must be born a second time by the Spirit, or we cannot be saved from wrath. Regeneration by the Holy Spirit is not something we can do or cause to occur. Rather, it is like our physical birth, something that is done to us. It is imposed upon us by the Spirit of God. It is a mysterious work of the Spirit of God. To us, it is completely unpredictable. Nobody can tell how or why God chooses who to make alive by the Spirit. It's like the wind, Jesus tells us, that blows whichever way it wishes and we cannot control it ourselves. Paul sets forth this startling truth. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. Paul isn't speaking merely of mouthing those words, but rather of believing them and submitting to Christ as Lord. Thus, anyone truly proclaiming Christ and His gospel, that person is a manifestation, an example of a miracle working by the Holy Ghost. This miracle of conversion and faith is far greater than the sign gifts such as speaking in tongues or miraculous healings. The regeneration of a cold, dead heart by the Spirit of God so that faith springs up and the gospel is laid hold of is the greatest miracle that can be seen in God's world. Further, the Lord Jesus promised a continual indwelling of His people by the Holy Ghost, the promised comforter, abides with the Lord's people forever. The Holy Ghost calls to mind the things of Christ, the things Christ said and showed His apostles things to come. The Spirit is the source of the writings of the Scripture, which He inspires and directs holy men of God to set down on paper for us. The Holy Ghost teaches us and glorifies Christ. The Spirit reveals the things of God unto His people. Not only so, but the Holy Ghost preaches the truth about Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul describes how the Holy Ghost is essential before anyone can understand, receive, and believe gospel truth. 
he describes the two categories of people. Those who are natural and reject the gospel because it seems foolish to them. And the cross of Christ seems to be a stumbling block. The other category is those people who are called by God to receive the gospel and lay hold of it as God's wisdom and power. No natural man can have God's promise enter into his very heart unless the Spirit has revealed those promises to him. Only the Spirit of God can convey to poor men God's truth of salvation. As Paul puts it, we've received the Spirit so that we can truly know the things that are given to us by God. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are only discerned spiritually. Thus, gospel truths can only be grasped and received by those to whom the Spirit has revealed them. This clear-cut description by Paul of the hopelessness of those who have not been regenerated by the Holy Ghost and are therefore completely unable to lay hold of the gospel circles around back to exactly what Jesus declared to Nicodemus. Without being born spiritually by the Holy Ghost, no man can see or enter into the kingdom of God. There can be no saving faith in a man's heart without first the special working of the Holy Ghost in that man's heart. If we have truly trusted in Jesus, then because that would be impossible without the Holy Ghost in us, it shows that we indeed have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit has indeed brought us to spiritual life in Christ. It is a miracle of God that His people still gather in Christ's name each Lord's day to celebrate Jesus being made a curse for us in order to redeem us all around the world. Sometimes under very difficult circumstances, the Lord's people still meet in Jesus' name to worship and glorify God for His great gospel provision. Hallelujah, Christ was made a curse for us that we might receive the Holy Ghost. Nobody can take away what God's given to us by His Spirit. And that is salvation forever. Now, the text, of course, is Galatians 3 at verse 13, which reads, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It is true that from the first, at the Feast of Pentecost, the apostles tied the gift of the Holy Ghost directly to the gospel message and promises. And we see this in Acts chapter 2, the tail end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, beginning at verse 36. Therefore, he said, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now this is, of course, a threat, you see, of deep proportion for these people because it implicates them in deicide, that they had slain God's Messiah. And by His resurrection, He has been proved and exalted 
to the King of glory. And so when they heard this, it says, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized in the same day that were added unto them about 3,000 souls. But notice that text. Reception and embracing of the gospel results in the remission of sins and the reception of the gift of the Holy Ghost. So here is tied together belief in the gospel, embracing the gospel, Trusting in the death of the Lord Jesus for a remission of sin and for the receiving of the gift of the Spirit. And this, of course, was as Jesus had promised, wasn't it? You remember when he breathed on his disciples after he rose from the dead, after they received him and acknowledged who he was and that he was the risen Lord of glory. Why, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And this was in keeping with the promises he had made the night that he was betrayed, that he would send the Comforter, that the Father would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, unto his people to dwell with them and to be in them. And so this promise carries forward, you see, into the preaching of the gospel by the apostles and down through the ages by all believers, that there is a promise of justification By faith in Christ, there is a promise of the forgiveness of sin by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And there is the promise of the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit in all those who put their trust in Christ. Now the Holy Ghost witnesses to our hearts the facts of the gospel and the reign of Christ. And it is not always a positive thing. There are circumstances in which it creates a great deal of hatred by the people of this world. And we see that in Peter's sermon to the wicked leaders of Israel who are trying to stamp out the preaching of Christ, the preaching of resurrection by the Lord Jesus, the preaching of Christ as the true Messiah of God and as the Savior of all who call upon Him at verse 26 of Acts 5, we read, Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That is the Lord Jesus' blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew, and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Interesting, isn't it, that this early on, when there were so many eyewitnesses to the things concerning the Lord Jesus, that even at this early stage, you see, Peter declares that the Holy Ghost is a witness to these things, to gospel truths about Jesus. The Holy Ghost is a witness to these things. How? In the hearts, in the minds of the people who He has raised up unto faith in Christ. It is not just the eyewitness representation that Peter is focusing on, but it is the speaking by the Spirit to the Lord's people of the truth of these things. Now, what is the response to this declaration? Verse 33, when they heard that, that is the wicked rulers, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. You see that the witness of the Holy Ghost is not always accepted, especially when it is articulated against the interests of wicked men who are in rebellion against Christ. Why, they hate the notion that there is a Holy Ghost to testify against them. And the best way to hush him up, they think, foolishly, is to kill his people. And that was the plot that they were not able to carry out against the Lord's people at this time. The Holy Ghost's coming unto a people was the proof of gospel faith in the hearts of the Gentiles. We said earlier that if we have trusted in Jesus and if we have received the gospel and if we have believed on Him as Lord, that is a demonstration that the Holy Ghost has come upon us. But you see, to the apostles, who were all Jewish people, they didn't believe that any of this was for the Gentiles, even though the Scriptures had clearly stated that Christ would be raised up a light unto the Gentiles. A light, something that non-Jewish people would also see and be dazzled with and be drawn to and come unto and bask in the glory of. But they... They were very selfish and proprietary. And they thought that perhaps the gospel was only meant for the Lord's kindred people who had been the very ones who had rejected it when He came. But the Lord had different plans and revealed them to Peter, who was very proprietary, very full of the pride of his heritage and of his people, He was therefore the one that the Lord practically had to force to go preach the gospel to lost Gentiles and to see with his own very eyes the consequences of it, which were that the fact they received the Holy Ghost was proof enough that they had believed the gospel, savingly believed it. And we read of this, of course, in the story of Peter preaching to the centurion Cornelius. And so Peter finally is present before this Gentile household and retinue there. And he says at verse 36 of Acts 10, The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published 
throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and of dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. So this was the message that Peter preached to Cornelius and to his household. And then so what happens? While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision, that is the Jewish people that went with Peter, which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. Several things to be said about this text of Scripture. Note that the speaking in tongues was not so much a sign to the Gentiles who had received the Holy Spirit, but it was a sign to the Jews, that is to Peter and to the others, that they had received the Holy Spirit. The Lord doesn't have to prove to any of us that the Holy Spirit indwells us by making us speak in tongues. Rather, the speaking in tongues is often in the Scriptures used to demonstrate the reality of the coming of the Holy Spirit to a person to people who are skeptical about it. The people who in this case thought that it wasn't meant for Gentiles, the gospel that is, wasn't meant for Gentiles, that G- Gentiles probably wouldn't even be able to believe the gospel. And surely that the promise of the Holy Spirit was exclusive towards those of the Jewish ethnic group and faith and religious activity and upbringing and so forth. So you see that In a real sense, this speaking in tongues by the Gentile believers, converts here, was meant to force the apostles and the disciples to grapple with and to accept the truth that the gospel was meant to be believed by Gentiles as well as by Jews. It was meant to be believed by the whole world. That is, people and nations and tongues all over the face of the world, not to be limited only to the Jewish people. So it is a sign of the coming of the Holy Ghost that was poured out on the Lord's people. It was the same sign, you see, as the sign that was shown at Pentecost when they spoke in tongues, as if it were a seal or a symbol of the fact that the Holy Ghost had come and was indwelling 
these believers and that the promise that Jesus made to them had been fulfilled at Pentecost. So this was the proof that these people could be saved, these lost Gentiles, and that they also entered into all the gospel promises, including the promise of the Holy Ghost. So these skeptics were forced into submission to what the prophets had always said. Peter spoke in proof of these things to the other leaders of the church who had not seen them. In Acts chapter 11, at verse 15, while he defends his preaching of the gospel to Gentiles and insists that they also are now fellow believers and in the church of God, he said this, As I begin to speak, he's describing the events that took place. The Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they held their peace. That is, they stopped complaining about what Peter had done. They held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So you see how they tie the repentance and true faith of the Gentiles to the receiving of the Holy Ghost. It is the proof, you see, that they have repented and believed. And this, of course, is consistent with what Paul taught the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12. No man saith that Jesus is Lord except it be by the Holy Ghost. There cannot be saving faith. There cannot be repentance. There cannot be a laying hold of the gospel without the working and presence of the Holy Ghost. Note that Paul remarks upon how the Holy Ghost cements together all believers, Jews and Gentiles, into the glorious church of Christ. And first he writes of Christ's death, bringing us together in Ephesians chapter 2, at verse 14, where we read, For He is our peace, that is the Lord Jesus, who hath made both one, that is Jews and Gentiles, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, that is the law that separated Jews from Gentiles in their own thoughts, and having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Here is the reconciliation between people of all nations and races and tongues, and especially between Jews and non-Jews. There is an abolition of the dispute between people based on religious observances, bringing into unity all of these people, making us all one with each other in Christ and making peace. So there cannot be any factions or disputes or segregations or any like thing in the Lord's church, not if we are in obedience unto Christ. 
that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So it's not just a reconciliation of people amongst themselves. It's also a reconciliation with the holy God by the cross, which slays the enmity that was between lost men and a righteous God, and came and preached peace to you that were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And here we see this interesting observation that through the Lord Jesus we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. So it is necessary for us to have access to God the Father that number one, Christ should have died to take away the enmity that was between us and God. And number two, that the Holy Spirit should cement together all of the Lord's people unto God the Father, that we have access unto the Father by the same Spirit, all of us together, unto God. Our access to the Father is by one Spirit. And this harkens back to that point that nobody can understand or commune with God except the Spirit of God And here we are. God ties us to Himself in knowledge and understanding by the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. He implants into His people the Spirit of God so that you see we are in union by that common Spirit, as it were, with God in a way that is more intimate by way of connection, then the connection between friends or the connection in families, parents and children, or even the connection between husband and wife. This commonality between the Lord's people and Himself by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us is a miraculous thing. It's a striking thing. It's a glorious thing. It is a connection that supersedes and overcomes in its strength and power all the things, all the other ways in which people are united socially, morally, ethically, or even by marriage. This is a, an astounding thing that God has done, that He should be in union with His creatures whom He has redeemed by His Spirit put into us that the Spirit of God should connect us with the Father. And then the writer develops a little metaphor, Paul develops a little metaphor of a building that's cemented together in verses 19 through 23. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So here is this image of a building built upon Christ. And this is an ancient reference to Christ as the cornerstone. The the one who trues up the building. The one who sets the right angles of the corner. So that the building is safe and secure and won't tumble over. Because it's not been built levelly or accurately. And the walls are leaning and bowing out and so forth. Christ is the measure 
of righteousness and of rectitude and of stability for all of his people in, in his church. You see, there is a building formed of all of these disparate folks who used to not get along with each other for all sorts of ethnic and religious reasons, but are now brought together in Christ and by the one Spirit into fellowship with the Father. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. And here again is a recapitulation that the Spirit dwelling in us makes us a habitation of God, that God inhabits His people in this intimate and glorious way, which is wholly apart from anything that we experience outside of the Christian faith and outside of the unity which God has given to us by His Spirit. And I wonder if you've noticed the contrast between this unity with God Himself by His Spirit dwelling in us with what Paul said at the beginning of Ephesians 2, You have He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in whom in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience. So you see there is the lost people in whom the spirit of the devil works in their disobedience. And now, you see, the Spirit of God works in us unto obedience, doesn't it? Unto righteousness. We'll get more into that, hopefully, in the will of the Lord next Lord's Day. But here is this binding together like a spiritual cement, as it were, the people of God into the church of God and the church of God being a habitation of God, the way in which God inhabits His people and His church is by the indwelling of the Spirit. The love of God is displayed in the indwelling of the Holy Ghost in His people. We see this in many places, but think, for example, of 1 John chapter 4 at verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. Notice that the Son was sent to be the propitiation for our sin. And therein we find the exceeding love of God, that He should have taken notice of us, that He should have desired to redeem us unto Himself, that He should have thought to rescue us from our own sin and judgment and death, that He should have determined to turn aside His wrath against us and to lay it on Jesus as the propitiation so that He might be reconciled to us and we to Him so that He might love us, so that He might bring us 
unto himself, into his presence. And here John then says, he has given us his spirit so that we know that he dwells in us and we in him. Again, this is in accord with what has been taught in other places. That the presence of the Spirit of God with His people is the proof that we have trusted in His promises in the gospel and that He has knit us unto Him in this intimate and peculiar fashion. And then, verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him and He in God. And this is, of course, a restatement if you will, of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. No man saith that Jesus is Lord except it be by the Holy Ghost. You see, you cannot embrace truly. You cannot exercise faith truly. You cannot rely upon the gospel truly unless you have the Spirit of God within you, that God dwells in you and you in God through Christ. These things go together. They cannot be separated. They cannot be teased apart. And it is a magnificent truth that we are, we who've trusted truly in Jesus and have laid our hands upon His sacrifice, cast away all of our vain works of self-righteousness, but trusted only in the obedience and blood of the Redeemer that we are in God and God is in us by the Spirit that is from God. And all of that because Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. None of it would be possible, you see. Can God dwell with the unrighteous? Can the wicked dwell in and with God? No. The answer is no, God will not connect Himself, you see, to such wickedness. And yet, we are in union with Christ. We are dwelt in by God through His Spirit. We do dwell in God through Jesus Christ. Because it was necessary that Jesus should abolish our crimes against God, take away the wrath that we should have received, For there to be any peace and reconciliation and satisfaction that the enmity be taken away by the sacrifice. That was the only hope of this intimate communion between the creature and the Creator. That the Spirit of God should dwell in us. That our crimes must be expunged in order to make it possible so that God might dwell in us and we in Christ. And around this table, you see, this remembrance that Jesus ordained of what He did to bring us to peace with the Almighty God against whom we had rebelled and turned our backs. He was judged so that we might be forgiven and cleansed and pardoned and justified and given the Holy Ghost to dwell in us and to cement us unto the great, almighty, and glorious God of all the world. It is an astounding thing. It is a glorious thing. It's the kind of thing that if we consider and meditate upon it, it will take our breath away. Let us not hold it as anything common, 
but in all reverence and fear to gather around this table and to see the symbols of the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. May we worship as we partake of this feast together. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the scriptures tell us that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, Take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for rebels and for sinners. Thank God shed for you and me. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in your Lamb that was slain, the Lamb that you provided, the one that was sent in answer to the question, where is the Lamb for the sacrifice? You provided yourself a Lamb. No other else would do. We couldn't provide one. There was none as fair as your Lord Jesus. And that you have sent Him into this world to be made the propitiation for our crimes before your face and that He shed His precious blood on Calvary's tree to take away our sin, to expunge our crimes, to satisfy all the demands of divine justice in our place. He was made a curse for us whereby we are redeemed, whereby we receive the blessing of Abraham, whereby we receive the promise of the Holy Ghost through faith. Lord, thank you that you have so knit your people together unto yourself and unto Christ, and that by your Spirit we have a testimony of Christ in our hearts and minds. And we thank you for this cup that he left us to symbolize the bloodshedding that he was about to make for us. We thank you that the Lord Jesus thereby showed his absolute certainty in the efficacious nature of the offering he was about to make, that it would indeed take away the sin of his people. And bless us as we partake of this now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 19 in the black book. Now in a song of grateful praise to Christ the Lord, our voice will raise. With all thy saints will join to tell Christ Jesus hath done all things well. Number 19.